We the people. Four score and I seven. have a dream. Ask what you tear down this wall. Which will live in infamy. Read my lips. Welcome to a very special edition of Civic Symphony. On January the 20th, Joe Biden will be inaugurated as President of the United States. So we thought we would do an episode based upon the inauguration and some of the history behind it. The U.S. Constitution does not speak much about the inauguration. Obviously, George Washington was the first president inaugurated. Uh, he is the one that decided to put his hand on the Bible. But it took the 20th Amendment to establish the date and the time of the inauguration, which is January 20th at noon. And the only requirement of the president is that he take the oath of office once he has been certified or the election has been certified by the Electoral College and the Congress of the United States. So there is some debate right now about whether Donald Trump is going to attend or if he should attend. Um, while a lot of people are upset by this, uh, historically, it should be pointed out he would not be the first president not to attend the inauguration of the incoming president. In fact, three times in our history, the president that was not elected has failed to show up for the inauguration. So we're going to look at those three occurrences and, and talk about some of the history and the reasons why uh, those presidents uh, that were not reelected did, did not attend. So amazingly, what the first time this occurs is in the election of 1800, in which John Adams refused to attend the inauguration of Thomas Jefferson. And you have two four, forefathers here that are basically going at each other over uh, political policies. Now, um, Adams is very upset at Jefferson's stance concerning France. Um, Jefferson was very pro-French, pro-French uh, revolution. John Adams was not. He was very pro-British, and so it caused a, a, a rupture in the relationship between the two. Adams was also upset over the way that Jefferson uh, wouldn't handle taxes. Jefferson was uh, very pro-middle class, very pro-farmer, which was not the way Adams viewed government. And, and finally, uh, they had an argument over religion. And so all of this eventually uh, escalated to the point that uh, Adams would not show up for the inauguration. Um, in fact, he left Washington early that day, uh, so he didn't have to stay around for the pomp and pageantry and the ceremony. Um, and in fact, Jefferson did not invite Adams to attend the inauguration. So this kind of sets a precedent uh, early on that the presidents don't have to attend the inauguration. Um, in fact, constitutionally, there is nothing in there about the outgoing president attending the, the ceremony. It is always seen as a political maneuver, as a way to make sure that democracy or the idea of democracy and smooth transition is honored. But there is no actual requirement. And so two forefathers, one forefather not attending the inauguration of another, another forefather does set a precedent. Now, what is interesting is the second time this occurs is when John Quincy Adams will not attend the inauguration of Andrew Jackson. And this was a very hostile election. And it is the second time that Jackson and John Quincy Adams asked to run for president. And the hostility begins uh, because of the result of the 1824 election. 
in which Andrew Jackson uh, gets a plurality of votes, but not a majority of votes, and it goes to the House of Representatives. And in the House, Henry Clay will cut a deal that will make John Quincy Adams the President of the United States. So when 1828 rolls around and Jackson defeats John Quincy Adams, John Quincy Adams simply refuses to show up for Andrew Jackson's ceremony. So early on in our country's history, we have twice where uh, the president does not attend the inauguration. So really early on, it was not a shocker that, that the president did not always show up for inauguration. And again, it was supposed to be seen as a smooth transition of power. But the two times that the outgoing president didn't show up, it really didn't affect the American democracy. Uh, the, the presidency went on, the presidents were sworn in, and while there was some political angst, the American democracy continued on. Now, we're going to take a very short break here, and then we're going to talk about probably the most relevant one when it concerns Donald Trump, which has to do with Andrew Johnson, who will take over for Abraham Lincoln um, and then it does not win his reelection bid. And we'll try and make some correlation or s some uh, ideas of why Trump and Andrew Johnson have so much in common. So we will be right back. about Andrew Johnson. Uh, Andrew Johnson is President Lincoln's second vice president. Uh, the, the first time Lincoln was president from 1861 to 1865, Hannibal Hamlin served as vice president. Uh, but for the election of 1865, um, Lincoln chose Andrew Johnson to be his running mate. Interestingly, Andrew Johnson was a Democrat, Lincoln being a Republican, but Lincoln did it to unify the party. So upon Lincoln's assassination, Andrew Johnson takes over as president and then is quickly impeached for violating uh, what was known as the Tenure of Office Act. It was a completely political impeachment. Um, he does survive. He was not removed. Again, we've never had a president removed, but he does survive by one vote in the Senate and finishes out his term. Now, when he runs for re-election, uh, he is defeated by U.S. Grant, who will go on to serve two terms. And because of the fact he was impeached uh, and he was defeated by a Republican, Andrew Johnson chose not to attend the inauguration of U.S. Grant. So a lot of relevancy there, a lot of correlation between Andrew Johnson and Donald Trump, obviously Donald Trump being impeached and may choose not to attend the inauguration of, of the, the, the person that represents the party that impeached him. So while you're going to hear a lot of talk that this is uh, not very presidential, there are three precedents for the president, again, the, the outgoing president to not attend the inauguration of the incoming president. And so this would be, uh, again, not one in the 1800s, 
but still um, not a historical first, as a lot of people are trying to say that it is. Um, and by the way, before you, it, people talk about, oh, it's never been this contentious, uh, going back to Andrew Jackson and John Quincy Adams, it was a very contentious time in our history. Um, Andrew Jackson is considered the first of the Western presidents, which added a little bit of more political tenseness to the situation because obviously John Quincy Adams coming out of that more historical uh, Virginia type of heritage in comparison to Andrew Jackson, who was more the Western candidate, the first Western candidate we have ever had in terms of Tennessee being the West back then. Um, so very contentious time. We survived it. American democracy has always survived it and always will. Whether the president of the United States shows up, the outgoing president shows up for the incoming president's inauguration is, while it may not be politically appropriate, it's never stopped our democracy from going forward, and it won't this time. Okay, we're going to look at the Georgia Senate race, which is going to uh, do, have a lot to determine the success, probably, of Joe Biden's presidency. So we'll take another break, and we'll be right back. So important to have Senator Leffler in the Senate, especially right now. What we need more than ever is a business mind. We need someone who understands how to not only write paychecks and, and sign paychecks, but how what it feels like waiting on that paycheck. Kelly Left, a fearless advocate for school choice, growing opportunities for minority businesses, and a comprehensive health care plan for all Georgians. This is the fight for the soul of the country. I'm Kelly Leffler. I approve this message. So in the break, you heard a commercial for Kelly Leffler uh, running for the Senate in Georgia. And in this segment, I don't really want to talk about or try to predict who's going to win or lose. Uh, I just want to walk through a couple of things I don't think can be reversed if the Democrats win and if they push through their agenda. Um, and the first one is the uh, packing of the court, as they say, adding more uh, justices to the Supreme Court. This is one of those things that if it's passed, you, it, there really is no going back. Um, the, originally, if you don't know, the Supreme Court had six justices in our history. It's dropped to five at one point. It moved up to 10 at one point. But since 1869, it has been at nine. And the, the real problem with packing the court is that, again, once it's done, the, there really isn't a way to, to pull it back. Um, let's say just for the fun of it, it, it gets extended to 11 Supreme Court justices. Well, you're, you're, in the future, you're probably not going to pull that back to nine. Once it's established at 11, then, then it would be 11. Now, the, the danger in this situation politically is that if the Republicans ever gain control of the House and the Senate and the presidency again, what is to stop them from going, oh, you want to pack it? Then here, we're going to go from 11 to 13. And then this becomes an endless game. So where, where is the final you know, goalpost, as they say? Is it 19? Is it 21? Is it 35? Do we make it its own little branch in, in terms of it has as many votes as the Senate does? Uh, it, it becomes this endless game. Most Americans do not want the court packed. Most Americans will tell you they grew up with nine. Nine has always been a number. It's a pretty equal number. It works pretty well. But politically, once you move that goalpost, once you start adding, then in theory, there's there's no stopping adding. 
And so it becomes whatever parties in power that can add simply adds judges to the Supreme Court. And it's a very dangerous thing. That is actually, in some ways, a bigger threat to our democracy than the whole uh, contesting uh, uh, votes in an election. Because you are basically changing one of the branches of the government and changing it in a very dangerous way. And basically what you're saying, well, is this, if you're the party, I I didn't get my way, so now I'm just going to change the rules. And this, again, replies to not just Democrats, this replies to Republicans if they were ever to start doing this. So it becomes an endless game that that most people will tell you they, they like not. All right. The other way that can have a significant impact uh, if it's passed, if the Democrats agenda is passed, is the making of new states, specifically the District of Columbia. Now, let's deal, first of all, with Puerto Rico, because Puerto Rico is is following the the basic guidelines, the, the, the basic history of the United States, with the exception of the 13 colonies. Um, most of our states came from territories. Now, th- there are some exceptions to the rule, um, but most of the states come from territories, and that's what Puerto Rico is doing, is trying to go from being a territory to a state. And again, historically, that that is the way it's always happened. Now, let's talk about, there's a few exceptions, and this is where the District of Columbia would fall in. Uh, obviously, Texas was a republic. California was a republic before they ever um, became states of the United States. Um, if you want to talk about, okay, you know, the Dakotas getting split, but, but basically that was the territory. Um, the other weird example in history is uh, West Virginia, who was formed out of the state of Virginia during the Civil War, and that makes it really unique in terms of it went from being, you know, part of a state to a state immediately. Um, but but again, that was in the Civil War, and that was a little bit different time. That brings us to the District of Columbia. It, a little history lesson here. The, the District of Columbia was formed out of a political deal in which um, right after the American Revolution, a lot of the northern states had a lot of debt. The southern states did not. And basically, the southern states agreed to pay off the debt of the American Revolution if the north would move the capital more to the south. Um, but, but the important part is this. The forefathers, the reason it's the District of Columbia and not Washington, Virginia, or Washington, Maryland, or Washington, South Carolina, or whatever you want to you know, put it at, is that they did not want any state to have the capital. And so, in essence, what you're doing is if you make D.C. a state, if, first of all, it's no longer a district. I mean, I guess it'd be the state of Columbia. I'm, I'm not sure what the name would be get granted to it. But basically, you're going right into the face of what the forefathers wanted. They did not want any one state to control the capital. And so this movement to make D.C. a state flies in the history and the heritage of our country. Now, most people will tell you, you know, if Puerto Rico's coming in, you have to have another state. Historically, we, we like to add them in pairs now, obviously Alaska and Hawaii. But there are other areas that can be states. Uh, the, the, I'm sorry, the Virgin Islands is out there. Um, American Samoa is out there. There's been talk about splitting up uh, California into two parts. So there are, are other options. But, but, but the main point of the, is this. Once you take these steps, packing the court, making D.C. a state, you're not going to go back. This is not legislation you can just flip. We've never had a state 
not become a state. Uh, you know, we've had states try and leave, uh, which is also illegal. We'll talk about that later on. Secession is illegal. But we have never had somebody become a state and then go, yeah, I don't want to be a state anymore. Or no, you're not going to be a state anymore and pull it back. So that is a very dangerous precedent if you're going to make the District of Columbia into a state and give the capital of the United States to one specific state. Okay, so when we come back, uh, it's weird laws of the United States. So for our weird law in this episode, we're going to go to Creskill, New Jersey, where the law says that cats must wear three bells in order to warn birds that uh, they are coming. Uh, just obviously some history here. Uh, the, the people that passed this law were bird lovers, first of all. But secondly, there was a health concern that, that cats were spreading diseases uh, that may have been carried by the birds. And so they, they put this in, obviously, to protect the birds. Now, what's more interesting is if you extend this law to the animal kingdom, for example, making cheetahs wear bells before they chase gazelles, or how about making bears wear bells before they start hunting for trout? Um, I can't imagine how big those bells would be. And more importantly, I don't want to be the individual responsible for putting those bells on the bears. Um, I, I guess you better make sure you're getting them while they're hibernating. But but obviously, it's a very interesting law. It, it of course, is no longer enforced. Uh, I can't imagine cats walking around with three bells on them. If you had five or six cats in, cats in your house, you'd, you'd probably end up going crazy. Okay, we have one, one last segment, and so we'll be right back. going to wrap up this special episode of Civic Symphony. As always, I need to thank Jason Shaw and Audionautics, as well as freesound.com for providing the music for this episode. If you have any questions, please send them and I'll do my best to answer them. Uh, if you have a comment, good or bad, feel free to send it. Hopefully, as we near the inauguration, you'll have a little bit better perspective of the history of the event and what has occurred before. And thank you all for listening. I hope to see you next time.